You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Hey, welcome to the Chris Spangle Show. Thank you for being here with us today. And I have a real treat for you. Um, or the person to blame. I don't know. Uh, with me this week is Andy Horning. Andy is running for Congress in the 8th District. And Andy, you are the person that turned me into a libertarian in 2004. You're running for Congress, and I was on your campaign as a head of the College Republicans. And I'd spout all my little Rush Limbaugh talking points that I'd read on National Review that day. And you'd just politely look at me and go, you know, that makes no sense, right? <laughs> Well, I apologize to the world for what I have done to you, but um, <laughs> at least you share my pain now. So, you know, I, I feel your pain and we're all together in this. You know, what's funny is I the other person responsible for that is Abdul. And I did a podcast with him earlier today. And the older I get, the more I turn into you two. I just, you know, <laughs> you, it, curmudgeonly. Yeah. Every everybody is just not pulling their weight. These idiots. <laughs> uh, yeah. You just sort of like the older you get and the more you learn, you sort of go. Ah, you become more empathetic, but also I don't know. You 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 always got criticized sometimes by me. Like, hey, you just can't blame the voters when you're running for office. But <laughs> here's the built-in problem here. So, in order to have any effect at all. We somehow have to let voters know that they're in charge, right? So, I mean, most voters feel helpless. They feel like, oh, we can't change the system. You know, I have to vote for these guys. And, you know, I, it, you know, we hold our nose and we, we vote um, in ways that don't match our rhetoric. And that's nuts. But in order to change that, we have to let them know that you have what you've chosen and that somehow, you know, in order to say you've got the power to fix it, we have to let them know you had the power to screw it up too. Yeah, and and where's where do you find the balance where you you have a message of love and you're you're trying not to be cynical and you're trying to be, I, I really do want to be positive. I really do want to. I mean, we have all kinds of good news these days that we didn't in times past. So I'm hoping that I can actually be less curmudgeonly in a fact based way, and that you know that my curmudgeonliness has in the past been based on evidence. <laughs> and history and yet with like the rainwater campaign and what happened in pennsylvania lately we have good reason to think that maybe voters are getting tired of voting status quo and maybe you know things like the truckers movement and things like um you know protests in general going all around you have these whether they're liberty-minded or just conservative or whatever they whatever they are there are people that are getting off their butts and doing things that has that's a reversal of a trend that that I've seen since at least 1999. I don't know if you remember. I mean, you you, you must have been like four years old or something in 1999. <laughs> but during the the mayor's race, we had 
the oh, the Indianapolis and let me just reset for for the, those who don't know Andy, he's run for office like a million times here in the, in Indiana for governor, oh, U.S. Senate, Congress, as a Republican, as a Democrat. But your first race was 1999 for mayor of Indianapolis, um, which was actually credited by a lot of people when I was doing some research for for something recently as as kind of helping revamp and revitalize the the libertarian party of indiana which has traditionally been one of the strongest in the in the state in the country i mean uh in terms of state affiliates andy has been a huge part of that people like mark rutherford a lot of people joe houtman people that we've talked to several times on this podcast you know but when you started running as a libertarian in 99 i mean you did I remember in 2004, you, you, you made like a newspaper. I still have the newspaper because you had to explain what a libertarian was and what they believed. I mean, when you compare your first run to now, like looking back, what do you see that that is just we take for granted now? Yeah, there's there's been lots of flip, lots of changes. I mean, even things like cell phones have made a huge impact. But um, and some of that's been very negative. So in 99, we had like 40 some odd debates with five candidates for Indianapolis mayor. And they were well attended. People came from all over the place and you know from all around Indianapolis, surrounding areas. And they descended on these debates and they listened. They asked good questions. That was really the last time we had like a really vigorous um, public forum debate sort of culture hmm. in Indianapolis. Because after that, I just noticed it got, got worse and worse. The debates started kind of thinning out. And in recent years, um, you've had, you know, group like the, you know, the League of uh, Women Voters and others that have kind of bailed out of what they used to do. And in my district in particular, in the 8th district, we have a candidate who... And it's, it's like I'm not going to you know, say too much against him about this because it actually works. It is a good gambit. You just hide. You know, if you're an incumbent, you just don't you don't debate your primary opponents. You don't debate anybody. You don't expose yourself to harsh criticism or tough questions. And you sail to victory on apathy. And that has worked for a long time. And part With of the part of the problem, though, you know, that I look and I see represented democracy is so anemic because people don't show up. Yep. If they were you, you, you know, I was talking to a Carmel city councilman this week and I go, can you name me the five people that show up to every city council meeting? And he goes, you mean the four, <laughs> you know, and and I'm like, if more than four people showed up, do you think that you'd listen to all these people and they'd have more influence? Absolutely. You know, and that's part of the problem is you can show up to a county council meeting and they want to throw you out because they don't know why you're there. You yeah. know, and so if more people showed up to their city council meetings, we think of politics and is like the thing you do every four years during the presidential race. But politics is showing up to your county council meeting and being the person running the League of Women Voters debates. Right. Like well, that's that's part of the problem is that we've become lazy. Well, you know, it's, it's you're bringing up something I haven't even thought about myself for a while. When I first got into politics, it was largely because. You know, I used to, I, I'm still very green and I was not a, a libertarian, you know, decades ago. Uh, well, no, I, mean, I guess decades ago I was. I, I'm, I, I'm really now many more decades old than I used to be. But <laughs> the, the, the fact that I started out in sort of my political awakening with a you know, friend of mine named Clark Collow, who I'm, I'm embarrassed now to say I haven't talked to him for years, but he and I went to a couple of um, like zoning board meetings or something like that where people don't show up. And we were able to stop 
the at least halt temporarily a, a really stupid plan to build in the flood zone of White River. And, you know, it was going to be a stupid thing where they're going to put pavement all over the place and it was going to be bad for runoff. And it, it was just it, it's just dumb to do that anyway. And we just showed up. And sometimes all you have to do in a meeting is just raise your hand and object to something. And then they say, ah, now I got to fill out the form X27B32. And and you can really throw a monkey wrench, monkey wrench into the works just by showing up. And so few people do that, that I was kind of jazzed that two of us, and you know, there's one meeting I went to where I, I can't remember if it was one of those things with, you know, Clark could make it or just me that just showed up anyway. One person, just me, showed up to a meeting and I was able to just, you know, at least change the, the, the outcome of the meeting. That kind of stuff is power that most people have no idea is available to them just by showing up. And, and you could see what, what people like, you know, the truckers did just by driving around. You'd block something or you, you don't have to carry flaming torches and pitchforks. You don't have to throw, you know, Molotov cocktails. You could just go about, you know, a, a, a fairly peaceful process of driving around or showing up or raising your hand, it's it's super easy to do. And that's one of the reasons I've, I focus so much on the democratic process itself as something that is a power, it's a weapon that we were granted at great cost so that we wouldn't have to have the sort of revolution that our founding fathers had to go through, where, you know, we could just by showing up and in, in this case, just, you know, dink, 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 boink, you know, like like entering anything that we do on a daily process. You're entering a text, you're buying something. All we do is show up and, and punch a few buttons and we can change the course of our nation. We have that power now because it's a collective power and because we think abstractly and especially since we've had this increased power of political parties, mostly since the 1970s. And I, that's another thing. People don't know the history of this. They don't know we didn't used to have political primaries. They didn't know that it, it didn't exist, the sort of two-party system that we have today before World War II. And if anybody got any sense of how this actually came to be and what our powers actually are, we would stop listening to the people who tell us, oh, you don't have a chance. You know, he's is he's got no chance. And then I wouldn't have been hearing all these years, one of the most painful things that ever hits my ears. Gosh, I wish I could vote for you. <laughs> right? You, it's like, ah. Yeah, as if you don't have the choice to vote for you on the ballot, because you are on the ballot. You know, and, <laughs> and that's one of the interesting things. You held the first Tea Party. I mean, you really kind of, uh, despite what others say, like you, you've been holding Tea Parties basically as long as you've been running for office. Um, but I remember in 2007 when we had a, an issue with property taxes going out of control, you inviting people to the steps of the state house, 500 people show up on July 4th, you know, and then the Tea Party movement kicks off. And so many of our fellow patriots from that era kind of have now adopted this cynical attitude of, well, we just need to start shooting. We have no power. That's too you big. Know, it's too big. I hate that. God, you're not going to shoot anybody if you're not even going to vote for it. <laughs> right? You haven't. And that's what I said to one guy on Twitter. I go, who's your county counselor? Have you shown up there first and just <laughs> shot your mouth off? Because I, I think that's one of the things that is most uh, uh, dismaying to me is people don't understand the power that you just talked about in this representative democracy. They haven't even exercised it. They, they Because they just don't want to do the work. 
you know, they they don't engage in it. So, I mean, as you've run for office, as you've engaged in the democratic process and put yourself out there and, you know, made your wife mad and put that effort and, you know, <laughs> made your jobs mad and put, put that effort forth, right? Like, you've I've seen you sacrifice for this stuff. Yeah. Um, but what have you learned about your power in the representative democracy, democratic oh, process? You know, the stuff you've been talking about, I've, I've been way more successful personally than I ever thought I could do. You know, I'm just, I'm not like, I'm not so different from anybody else. I, you know, I have more hobbies than I should. You know, there's a lot of stuff. I've got a life that I'd like to live myself. I've got a day job that's actually pretty darn demanding. And, you know, I have made lots of sacrifices for this true, but, you know, it's not like I've, it's not so hard to imagine, you know, that because I'm not into pro sports, especially, you know, I've, that gives me another eight hours a day to do stuff. So I, I put myself into this, but I didn't expect to have the effect that I've had. Like I mentioned right off the bat with those meetings I'd go to, where you just show up and you raise your hand and things change as a, as a result. I've had lots of people tell me, and, and by the way, I'd love to hear it. You know, I don't want to, yeah, I, I love to hear it when people say something like, oh, you've really given me, you know, a good reason to do this or you've given me hope or you've, you know, you've turned me you opened my eyes to this. I love to hear that stuff. But it's it's something that wasn't really that hard to do. It's in, in terms of the time it takes. Yeah, it's it's been a pain in the neck and it, the money that, you know, that's cost me personally, all of that. Sure. But a lot of people spend more than that on on their hobbies and and. You know, I, I think about how my wife is into pickleball and she spends a lot of time doing that. Okay, you know, everybody's got their thing. And I, I suppose if I think of politics as that, you know, if I were to win office, I'd be getting paid for what I'm doing for free now. But, it, you know, and so that would be great. But I'm doing this um, because I think it's something I have to do. And I feel better when I have done it. You know, I, I'd, I'd feel terrible if I wasn't doing something and talking about all of this stuff anyway. So if I'm complaining and fetching and and I'm not doing anything where I might be able to move the needle just a little bit. And that's really, you know, there's that Overton window thing. You know, there's there's a window of public tolerance and acceptance that you really can budge a little bit. And when I ran for, well, like my very first race, like mayor of Indianapolis, the discussions were all about other issues until I got into the debates and started talking about how, well, no, we don't need to be, you know, taking money from the police fund to, you know, to do this or to hire more police by taking money from here. We need to do something about our sewer system. We need to do something about basic infrastructure. And, you know, some of these things nobody was talking about until I did. And you mentioned it. And then suddenly people, not the other candidates, but the people who were listening say, well, doggone it. Yeah. You know, my sidewalks suck or my road sucks or on the street that I lived on. We actually had a culvert cave in and we had, you know, like a, a big hole in our street. And that everybody's got stories like that downtown, you know, where things happen, where the, the infrastructure was 115 years old, where, you know, we were talking about. And by bringing that up, people say, yeah, I, I, I've, I've got a similar story. And so the Overton window shifts a little bit. And you can do that in a debate, you know, where if people are showing up, if people are listening, and if any candidate, you know, from the Green Party, Libertarian Party, Democrat or Republican, they mention something that nobody else is saying, they can move that window one way or another. 
And we've seen that happening a lot lately, but it's mostly in in a direction I don't really like very much. Talk, well, so, talk about the rainwater campaign because, oh, I mean, that's a good example. I mean, it's a good it's a good example. But you know, th- the thing that I just keep thinking in my mind, Andy, is what a loser you are. How can you say that you've been <laughs> successful when you just keep losing? How can you, you possibly know, be successful? What What do you this, mean? This, you know, this is another one of those weird aspects of the two party system. In the two party system, one of those guys is going to lose. <laughs> right. We call them losers, especially you have areas where. You know, a Democrat is always going to win in downtown Indianapolis or a Republican is always going to win in this rural area, something like that. You don't say, you know, the Democrats, oh, you're a loser. You can't possibly. We don't we don't do that. And why? Why is that? We have these ridiculous abstractions that there are two parties that are different from everybody else. And that, you know, Donald Rainwater comes along. He comes in second in lots of counties. Thirty three out of ninety two. Yeah. So he comes in second. And yet we don't say that, well, you know, the the Democrat was a loser in these or the Republican was a loser. And you don't do that. You just say, well, he didn't win the election. So he's the loser. Well, what about the Democrat who lost? We don't call call him a loser, even though he's just as much a loser. If you don't win, you lost. We don't think straight about what actually happens in elections. And so when people say, well, libertarians can't possibly win, well, except the 12 that are already in office right now in Indiana, or the 144 or whatever it is in Pennsylvania that just just got elected. So, you know, the way we think about politics is not the way we think about anything else. And so you think, okay, maybe I haven't actually won an, an election outright, Maybe I did in 2004, if only living people counted. But you know, you, you think that the, the point really is that we have abstractions that we have erected around the two-party system that are baloney, not just an ideology. I think everybody knows that you know, with rhinos, dinos, linos, whatever you're talking about, there are people that don't match our perception of what the party is supposed to be. And so we dissect those people away from our party perception, even if the number of you know, rhinos exceeds the number of people that we would actually call real Republicans in office. It's totally bogus. So it's not ideology. It's not any sort of sensible thing like we like it or it's fun. It's just an abstraction that we've we've erected like some kind of totem or, you know, idol or something like that. And if, if we can just push away the abstractions just a little bit, the way people say they do. No, I mean, who doesn't say I don't vote for the party? I vote for the man. Everybody says, yeah, they say it, but numerically nobody does that. So you've got, you know, how many up until fairly recently, at least 90 percent of us were voting for the status quo all the time. And that's I mean, all the time, Democrat or Republican, maybe they'd switch a little bit. But given, you know, the parameters of what we've just discussed in terms of what the ideology is versus what they actually do versus what the party platform says, they're really just voting status quo. So if you're voting Democrat or Republican, it's pretty much the same system of lobbyists and full-time partisan staffers and, you know, 20-year-old, you know, interns and all of that stuff that are actually doing most of the work. And you've got legislators who don't write nearly as much legislation as the, you know, the unelected bureaucrats who are spitting out laws like machine gun bullets. And so this, this whole system is like this big bogus mess of, you know, corrupt nonsense, which anti-constitutional, all of our founders warned us about it. There's pretty much every aspect of our government that we've been warned against for, 
generations by even people in the in the system itself. So we've had people like who are office right now, like Massey or others who are talking about how the system is a mess and how these you know permanent um, partisan staffers have way too much power and that they transcend the power of the people who are in and out of the office every two years or people who come and go. So, you know, if people would listen to the, to the, the, the actually there are quite a few voices now. It's not just a few people like Massey. A lot of people who've left Congress have done the same thing. They've talked about how rotten it is and how corrupt it is. And I, and who out there right now doesn't know that our government is corrupt. Haven't we all been talking about, you know, this pay to play thing and, and, you know, how um, campaign donations turn into policy decisions and, is there anybody who doesn't understand? Yeah, I, I think the thing that we're missing is the alternatives. <laughs> like, you know, and, and that's because... We've always been there. Yeah, I mean, the alternatives, more people are willing to engage with the alternatives now. And exactly. I think, I think when you look at the, the, if you want to use the word legacy of your many runs, you look at somebody like me who met you in 2004 and, you know, has taken this pod... I mean, this podcast is 10 years old and created t- thousands of libertarians out of it. And that came out of your coaching tree, basically, you know, of somebody that you, because yeah, you got, made the effort. I got to give you props. You know, I don't know if you remember, I think I even said it at the time when you showed up with this big, you had this big, you know, three ring binder of stuff that you brought to the campaign. And it's like, who does this? Who does this much research? And, you know, and I was looking through, you had like little tabs on all of this stuff. And it's like, wow, this is cool. Yeah. So prep, prep, I, I've always been a prep nerd. Always. You, you, you sure impressed me with your prep. And so that, that's the kind of thing that there are, there are people like you and me out there who are waiting in the wings for, I don't know, some kind of inspiration. In my case, you know, I can point to certain events that things happened that inspired me to get, you know, to make something happen. And, you know, several, like when Goldsmith was the mayor and I was looking at my crumbling sidewalks. I wrote him funny letters and he would send me, you know, replies back, you know, I'm not going to fix your sidewalk, but keep the letters coming. I'm really enjoying these. And and so, you know, something like that kind of gets you a little bit energized. And so I can say Goldsmith helped me a little bit there. And then those meetings I went to with Clark Hollow, that, that kind of pushed me a little bit. Some people need to get smacked in the head. I also had a smack in the head when way, you know, many years ago, um, the IRS just came in and said, you know, you owe us a lot of money and, and the company that's reporting that you made this income, we know that they lied about it, and, but, you know, you're going to pay us anyway. And things like that happen to people where I didn't have, you know, I couldn't sue them. There was nothing I could do about it. And I ended up having to cough up an awful lot of money that everybody knew I didn't owe. And those things happen in real life. And sometimes that's what it takes to make somebody energized to do something. And so there are people that are preparation nerds like you right now. They're maybe they're pharmaceutical salesmen or they're, you know, they're shoe salesmen or they're, you know, they're teachers or whatever. They have not yet had the, the smack in the butt or the kick in the head, you know, intellectually or, you know, more or less figuratively speaking, necessary to make them get out of their comfort zone and do something. So there are a lot of people like that. And so I think what's happened lately is that, you know, there's been enough nonsense that, you know, there's been allowed to fester and bubble up where people are looking at our last, you know, President Trump, God bless him. Um, he was 
he was a bull in the China shop. And I'm not going to say anything more negative about him than, than the fact that we needed a bull in the China shop. And then you see what we have right now as our president. And some people are saying, are, are we just getting worse and worse? What is going on with the democratic process here? And they're seeing the economy doing gyrations where, you know, gold prices going up and down, stock prices going up and down. Um, everything is kind of gyrating where prices now are hitting people where it really counts. And I think that, you know, even like the mask mandates and all of that stuff, that was bad. It was inspiring. It made people act in ways they wouldn't have otherwise. But I think we're going to get a whole new generation of people who are now looking at their wallet getting thinner and thinner and thinking, wait, 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 how much worse can this get? Ezra, we- Ezra Klein, of all people, the guy from Vox, did a podcast with Larry Summers, who basically has been warning about inflation. He's the guy who like helped the USSR after it collapsed, Clinton's Treasury Secretary. You know, saying, "Hey, this this we're on the wrong road," and <laughs> and so Ezra Klein, this famous liberal progressive New York Times guy, basically like, "Hey, maybe what we've been talking about for twenty years has been the wrong stuff." I mean, because at, at a certain point, like, okay, you can look at the mask mandates, and I I did this in some ways. I'm like, well, it's a mask, but we'll never do vaccine mandates. The people will just reject that, and that that, that I was wrong. I had more faith in the middle to go, no, we're not going to go that far. We're not going to violate bodily autonomy. And boy, we sure, we sure did or tried. I mean, it's, it's, uh, and I think it's a wake up call. I think, you know, looking back at the last two years, I've always thought about the government being predatory, but you saw it in action. You saw the people being predatory towards each other. I mean, it's, it's well, hard to it. walk walk away from the last two years not going, man, there's some really bad tendencies in, in human beings, and we can't just always take for granted that the middle will save us or that, you know, the, the what is it, do sex mocking and the, the Godhead figure Deus swinging, yes, yeah, yes. coming to save us. That's not going to mm-hmm. happen. We got to do it ourselves. Well, in a way, maybe it is happening, and, and that's yeah. where... You know, the, the, the fact that these things are getting out of hand at last that a lot of us have been talking about forever. You know, th- there have been lots of Cassandras, you know, talk, you know, warning about inflation and all of these things happening. And and, you know, many years ago was the, you know, like the first time I repeated what I suppose is an ancient sentiment where, you know, think about something you think can't possibly happen. And then imagine what are you going to do when that does happen? Because it's going to happen. You know, history is, is nothing but re- repetitive in terms of what humans in government end up doing. You can generally predict what's going to happen as you accumulate more and more power into fewer and fewer hands. And that's what we've been doing. The, the end result is 100% guaranteed. You just don't know when and exactly how it's going to happen. But you know it's going to happen. And with all human civilizations having a 100% failure rate, there's a decision to be made. Do we want this to happen on our watch or not? And, you know, we always have the power to fail. And we've been exercising that, you know, a lot lately. But, you know, there's there's another underlying problem here that I think we've got to deal with. And that is that we are a, a culture of, well, really kind of malice right now. You think about what, what Republicans think of Democrats and what Democrats think of Republicans. And I know lots of Democrats and Republicans because they're in my family. So I, I've got I've got examples of these actual people, living, breathing Democrats, and Republicans that don't really hate each other. 
but they sure act like it sometimes. There are things you can't talk about. And when they're not in a family together, you can see how this, this boils over into the idea that um, Republicans have evil intentions, according to Democrats. Democrats think, you know, oh, you guys are evil and all of your impulses are from evil. Ours are all entirely good. And that leads to a sort of a sneering, um, uh, it, it's, it's a really disrespectful and hateful kind of approach to, to our factions that shouldn't really exist. And so while we, you know, it's, it's almost funny now that I always thought it would be kind of a cool thing to make up sort of an alien conspiracy where, you know, we've discovered that there's aliens out there. They're, they're small and they stink and we can beat them up real easy. Any red-blooded American male could get them, but we need to unify as, the, as a world to go build spaceships and find these, these terrible little aliens and kill them. Because if we had a, you know, a, a common enemy like that, maybe we could unite and, and we can use that hate that seems to be in all of us, focus it off the planet. But right now we've got these shifting alliances and little you know, bits of hatred that if like right now we you know, hate Russia. It wasn't that long ago we well, all thought Putin was so cool. You know, he 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 was we had pictures. Well, made, Andy, isn't it just nice to hate foreigners again, though? I, I, I'm not. I don't want anybody to stop to, hating foreigners. To, to, <laughs> to your point, though, I've seen so many people who are like unvaxxed say, "My brother-in-law reached out to me, or my brother reached out to me, and you know, f that guy after what you, yeah, the way yeah, you yeah. like." And it's like the second we all moved on to hating foreigners again, everybody, oh, these divisions are healed, and I, I don't. I, think that's a uh, not gonna work by the minute too it can shift yeah. by the minute and the circumstance so like right now you can have a bunch of people in a room all of them hate russia but then they start looking at each other and this this white guy says, oh he's a black guy i don't like black guys black guy oh i don't like this white guy or maybe somebody says oh he's gay over there and so we can just like that we can flip our hatred around to some other abstract you know category of human and say you know we, we've got this arbitrary distinction of what kind of gay you are right now, or you know, what kind of straight you are, what page of this porn you know magazine do you look at? And so we have an infinite number of ways to discredit each other's words because of this, you know, maybe he's saying something that sounds reasonable if it was from a you know a straight white male, but because he's a you know gay black man, I'm not gonna trust what what he's saying. And we do that all the time. And you think, you know, instead of instead of looking at each other's dignity and instead of looking at each other's. Yeah. I mean, what's the solution to that? How do we start to come out of this? I I don't want to say screw dignity because it's not like that's something that's it's bad. But we don't even have to think about dignity. We just have to think about all of us are flawed. And that if we think, you know, just a little bit humbly about how each one of us has been fooled, you know, each one of us has has said something. We've posted something we've later regretted. You know, we've we've all done stuff like that. And if we could just think a little bit more about our own limitations and imagine that these other people are humans too, then maybe we don't even have to go as, as lofty as thinking about human dignity. Maybe we just have to, you know, go the other direction and say, listen, we're we're humans. And and each of us has got problems. And if you know there are just a couple of simple things that we think about, like the, the non-aggression principle, if, if we were to articulate that properly, it's not that we have to like each other. We just have to, you know, just don't, don't be mean to other people. You know, you don't hit them. You don't take their stuff. And so if, if we just make this, you know, down to the kindergarten level, 
you know, where you're talking about the, the simplest human characteristics of honesty and, you know, humility might be a hard thing for, for some of us. You know, I, I know Abdul and stuff jokes around about how he, he does that a lot. God love him. And, and I, you know, all of us do that to some degree. We, we like to think that we are always right. We're way up here somewhere. What we need to do is just, you know, back off a little bit and just think, all right, we've all been fooled. We've all been lied to. We've all made bad votes. Let's let's just take a breath for a minute and start thinking about what it is that we're really doing in the not just in the voting booth, but as a nation. You know, what, what if we had any idea what's really been going on in Ukraine for well since the 1700s, for goodness sakes, you know, the, the history of that region and what we have been doing over there. We were supplying them weapons until just, you know, right before, you know, just as Russia was starting to to, to mount uh, their own weapons against the border, we thought, well, maybe we ought to back off for a little bit. And so we stopped supplying weapons. Just, you know, isn't there something fishy about that? Don't we think that that's odd that we saw this happening? We think, oh, let, let's cool it just a minute. Now we're supplying them weapons again now that, that Putin went ahead and invaded. But the fact that we've been so concerned about like the Cuban Missile Crisis. You know, we had the Monroe Doctrine where, no, you, nobody's going to mess around in our hemisphere. We're going to guard our hemisphere. But we don't let anybody else do that. Isn't that a, a, a hubris on its own as a nation? Aren't we kind of demonstrating sort of the opposite of the golden rule? When, you know, we do it to un, unto others what we would never want done unto us. Well, that's how we got out of the Cuban Missile Crisis was Kennedy made us, Robert Kennedy made a secret agreement with the Russian foreign minister to remove these, you know, ballistic missiles out of Poland quietly. Yeah. And that's why they had put the missiles in Cuba in the first place. Yes. Was because we had missiles pointed at them. But, you know, we shrilly freaked out. Um, well, we've, we've just got time for a, two more questions that I want to get out of okay. here. Yes. Um, why are you running again? What are you running for? What are some of the top things that you're going to talk about? And then the second one, we'll talk about your book. But first, let's talk about the campaign and tell us, you know, what you're running for, why, and how can people support you? Well, it's really no different than anything before, really. I mean, it's, it's, I, I'm, I haven't really changed what I've been promoting in terms of, you know, busting up the corruption. And, you know, kind of the whole idea of the two party system really is is a story of corruption. And, you know, what we need to do is understand that um, there are better ways to do things. And they've been written down for a couple hundred years. And I've got an eight point plan that I think is a procedural um, guide to what I mean, you could say I'm right or wrong. I'm trying to be humble here again but that's but, not going to work you know, in politics you're talking the golden rule and humility in politics what do you I know, you're a terrible politician there is a certain amount of of arrogance that's just involved with running for office you know just to think that you can do a better job there is you know i got to understand that there is a bit of there is a bit of hubris there but i do have um you know sort of an eight point plan um on my it's on my old blog site you helped me actually set that up at we declare.wordpress.com uh, many decades ago. Um, I've got a website at uh, horningforcongress.com. So, if, you know, Andrew Hornings and just H-O-R-N-I-N-G, number four, Congress. So horningforcongress.com. And I have way too much information there for a political website. I need to trim that down to what's more uh, appropriate to. I saw, I saw a headline the other day. Somebody was being critical of, uh, I think it was Rick Scott put out this plan 
And the journalist was like, what an idiot putting out details in an election year. You can't do that sort of thing. You can't have a... <laughs> I've always done that. And, and so, I've, you know, like you mentioned, my newspaper, I've always, you know, kind of overloaded with information. And that does two things. It, 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 it allows people to see what you're thinking, but it also opens you up to criticism. Yeah. So, you know, if you, if you say too much, then people are going to be thinking, oh, well, there's something I disagree with. But you know it then. You yeah. know what you disagree with. When you have a website that just has a donate button and nothing else, you don't know what they're really going to say. You don't, you don't, and they're, they're going to change their, their words depending on who they're talking to. Where I feel if I write it down, if you disagree with me, just talk. You can hold Let's, you accountable. And hold me accountable to it. When If, if you elect me, then you know, you know it, at least up front, you've got some idea what I was going to do because I wrote it down. I don't want to compare it to Mein Kampf, of course, but th that is kind of the thing where you you write down you you should have some idea what Hitler is going to do because he wrote it down. So I mean, Vladimir Putin wrote an article years ago, the Munich yeah. the Munich Conference in two thousand seven, and you know, looking at Bush in two thousand and I think eight, and saying, "Well, Ukraine's not a real country," or the speech three days like. <laughs> <laughs> Osama bin Laden saying, I'm going to destroy you within by creating, you know, I mean, these guys tell you exactly what they're thinking. You should believe them when they tell you. Well, that's X, just, y, you know, it's a killer in politics that there's no advantage to being right and there's no disadvantage to being wrong. And so that, you know, the, the people who are, you know, habitually wrong get reelected anyway. And they're the ones who generally don't say very much at all. And so we can, you know, like that, that was even a famous thing where, where, you know, um, it was, um, I was just about to say Osama bin Laden. Obama was a tabula rasa where he didn't say. I, I believe you meant Barack Hussein Obama. <laughs> I, I had to, to. Anyway, I should probably get back to what you're actually trying to direct me into <laughs> your campaign. Yeah, my campaign. So um, if you want to get a hold of me, I made it pretty easy. I've got a form on my website. Um, anybody can email me. I always I, I try to always respond. I put my phone number out there in the past when I ran for governor. And you know how many people called me? I, I had my phone number out there. It's like two, five, five. Yeah. five. So, um, you know, I, I'm, I, I'd like to think that anybody can get a hold of me. And I, I've tried to make it as easy as possible. Um, people so, genuinely, and I've learned this working for a nationally syndicated radio show. People genuinely don't think that they're going to get the real you. They don't really think that you're going to answer the phone. They think it's a trick to trap their information. Yeah. Did you email us? It's going to go to the inbox that Mark reads where he prints it out and hands it to Tom. You know, I mean, it's it's uh, you know, put your phone number out there and oh, I'll never. It's not that this is a ploy because people yeah. are just they've been conditioned by BS. Yeah. So I, I probably should do that. If anybody if I do put my phone number there, I'll answer with a robot voice or something like that. Just to, <laughs> so they feel comfortable with it. But, you know, the. um the website and um, I'm on Facebook, of course. I've got a couple of pages and um, uh, what else would anybody want to know? I mean, I'm always willing to talk about that. Well, tell us about the book. Well, I've got two books out there. Well, well actually one book out now, another one about to come out. So I, I have a fantasy book that's it's fairly political. Um, it, you know, The Truth About Excelsior, it's on Amazon. And that is kind of my... Um, I don't know. I, I try to make sort of a happier version of it. It's, it's, it's not at all like Atlas Shrugged, but it's, it's a libertarian fantasy and in, in, in kind of a, in, a, in sort of a pleasant way, I like to think. Um, but I also think it's a fairly realistic depiction of what would happen if we ever did have the sort of libertarian um, or even anarchist government 
um, that people think can exist. You know, what, how would that actually work in the real world? And it's got its problems. And so, you know, I, I, I may try to make it fun and, and interesting, but um, I, I think there's a lot of real politics in it. And I put some real history in it with just a few little twists here and there. Uh, my next book, however, is going to be a much more straight up um, political defense of constitutional rule of law. You know, what we did wrong. Um, I'm going to have my annotated constitution, um, the annotated declaration of independence, and then my plan for getting back to what I think would make sense. And so I, I think I'm going to describe a problem, put what, what is ours already by law and by principle. And then at the end, it's going to be um, what I think we need to do to fix it. So that should be, it's going to be called. Hold on just a second. Andy. <laughs> Come here, baby. How are you? All right. Well, sorry for the interruption from my associate producer, Andy, but thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate your time. Love to have you back on soon. Uh, and I wish everybody uh, th go check out his website. I will put all the links in the show notes and thanks for coming on. Well, thank you. It's been fun. All right. Thanks everybody. Thanks for listening to the Chris Spangle show and we will talk to you again soon.